Well, hello, and welcome to the Chess Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Gretchen Winter. On behalf of CHEST, I would like to welcome you to this CHEST Journal podcast. I am Dr. Gretchen Winter, and I am your CHEST podcast moderator. Thank you all for joining us today for what will be a vibrant debate on whether fellowship interviews should remain virtual. We are very fortunate today to have Dr. Bashak Charu and Dr. Shireen Alam as our guests. Dr. Cheru wrote the pro side of this point-counterpoint on whether fellowship interviews should remain exclusively virtual, and Dr. Alam wrote the con side. Dr. Cheru is an associate professor and the Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine Program Director at the University of Washington, and Dr. Alam is an associate professor and the Program Director for the Emory Pulmonary and Critical Care Fellowship Program. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to the discussion. I'm excited to be here, too. Thank you. Great. So, Dr. Cheru, you detailed the financial costs of the interview process. Can you please discuss the extent of those and the impact of virtual interviews on resident and program finances? Sure. Maybe we'll start with the impact on applicants themselves. And I'll say it was really eye-opening to learn just how much applicants are spending on the interview process. There are clearly a lot of costs for transportation and lodging, but applicants are also paying for application fees, and that's based on the number of programs that they apply to. They have to obtain their USMLE transcripts. There's costs for those. They have to feed themselves while they're traveling, and then there's a separate registration fee for the National Residency Matching Program. And a lot of the literature about financial costs actually comes from uh, the surgical literature, and they've reported that the median cost for applicants is somewhere between $4,000 and $7,200 per applicant, but with a range of up to $25,000, and I think that's just astounding. If we stick with the, just even the median, if folks are spending six dollars or $7,000, that's 10% of the salary of a third-year resident. So I think the costs, the financial costs, are not insignificant. I think on the program side, um, we don't really have numbers from the literature. We know that programs generally will have a pre- or post-interview dinner or a happy hour, so they would need to pay for the cost of a venue and food and drinks. Um, They also feed applicants on interview day. And then what's really hard to quantify is the personnel time. I'm at a program where for in-person interviews, applicants generally would go between two of our clinical sites, and we had staff to escort applicants to make sure they didn't get lost along the way to take them to the shuttle. Um, So harder to know how much it costs for programs, but I think for applicants and, and programs alike, there are a lot of financial costs. And Dr. Cheru, can you please also discuss the opportunity costs of in-person interviews to applicants and how the virtual interviews can reduce those? Sure, and if it's okay, maybe I'll start by defining opportunity cost because Mm -hmm. this is a term from the world of economics and not everyone might be familiar with it, but it's really referring to the loss of potential gain from other alternatives when one alternative is chosen. So in this case... It would be reframing the question as, what is an applicant missing out on when they're spending weeks traveling around the country? And I think that the things that come to mind there, they're missing 
time from clinical rotations. They're taking time away from family and friends during a really busy time in their medical training. And then some applicants have limited professional leave, and we hear about applicants having to use sick time or vacation time in order to attend these interviews. And Dr. Alam, you mentioned that reducing financial and opportunity costs will not necessarily level the playing field and improve diversity, but that virtual interviews may actually introduce new biases. Can you please discuss those? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so like Dr. Choru just uh, explained, uh, virtual interviews do reduce the financial burden for applicants specifically. And it's easy to um, think that by reducing that financial burden, um, they will level the playing field and then automatically improve diversity. And it's true that they will probably level the playing field, but they level the playing field in terms of access to the interview process. Um, However, it's, it's really important to realize that the virtual format can itself introduce other biases uh, that may affect diversity that we're not necessarily used to thinking about. Um, and these have to do with, number one, um, the interview allocation, which I think we will tackle in a later question, and number two, how we rate candidates during virtual interviews. So I'm going to briefly talk about these four types of biases that um, can be introduced by the digital format and can influence candidate rating. So the first is the digital quality bias. Um, studies have, have shown that even when raters are specifically told to ignore the audiovisual quality, they still, when they're rating candidates over um, a virtual format, they'll still rate candidates with poorer AV quality lower than those with better AV quality. So what ensues is that candidates who have no access to either good audiovisual equipment or high-speed connectivity may face a systemic bias um, in, that, in that way. The second type of bias is actually an interesting one, and I had never thought of it before I started researching the biases for virtual interviews, and it's termed the coded gaze bias. So this sort of bias stems from the fact that cameras and facial recognition software have been tested mainly on white faces, which probably does not, doesn't come as a, as a shock. Um, and that could lead to a loss of the subtleties, subtleties of facial expression um, when you're talking to somebody who is non-white. So it can interfere with nonverbal communications in a way that could disproportionately affect uh, dark-skinned individuals. The third type of bias is the background bias. Um, so candidates with living situations that give them no easy access to a quiet environment with a good connectivity are going to face, obviously, the extra burden to find such a place to conduct the virtual interview. Um, and when candidates nowadays choose to conduct interviews from their home, they are giving the interviewer glimpses of their own private world that would not have been otherwise available to that interviewer. And so that can lead to the rater making assumptions uh, about the candidates that may or may not be true and that may affect their ratings uh, in a way, either a positive or a negative way. And then finally, the last type of bias that I think is, is an important one is the cognitive load bias. So I, I'm sure you, we've all experienced what we now call, quote, Zoom fatigue, uh, where 
a one-hour meeting over a virtual platform will will leave you feeling so much more drained than a similarly long one in person. Um, And this is because we have to use more of our mental bandwidth to effectively connect and communicate with people over a digital platform than we would in person. We're going to have to sit real still. We have to unnaturally look at the camera to give the other person the impression that we're looking directly at them or making eye contact. Um, We have this constant window showing us our own appearance uh, that all of these take take up ment- mental bandwidth. And it turns out that the more mental, b- mental bandwidth and cognitive load that one has to, to spend on a task, the more likely there are to use mental shortcuts and implicit biases to make decisions uh, in order to alleviate that, that uh, cognitive load. So that can make interviewers more prone to fall back on their implicit biases when they're rating candidates. So in short, I think being aware of these new types of biases um, is important for programs and recruitment committees so that they can uh, appropriately try to mitigate them. Excellent. Now, Dr. Chiru, you bring up the important point of how in-person interviews may affect diversity. Can you please elaborate on that? Sure. I'll, I'll start out by actually amplifying two things that Dr. Alam said that I completely agree with, and those are that, one, that the risk of bias doesn't go away with virtual interviews, and two, that, that we are introducing new biases into this process. But I think, like she said, if we can't get folks access to interviews in the first place, that's a problem, right? Then we're never going to be able to recruit these folks to get to a spot where we can rank them and bring them to our programs. And I think diversity is a broad term. It goes beyond gender diversity or racial or ethnic diversity. And we know that our applicants are coming from different socioeconomic backgrounds. For applicants that have limited financial resources, these travel costs that we're talking about, six, $7,000, those may be prohibitive. And it may be that they're going to limit their interviews in, in places that are easier for them to get to, less costly for them to get to. And I, I think that's a loss for us. It's a loss for those applicants. It's a loss for the programs who don't get the opportunity to meet those folks. Now, Dr. Alam, on the other hand, you argue that in-person interviews offer a benefit to underrepresented minority candidates in assessing their fit in a program. Can you please uh, discuss that? Yeah. Um, so I think that we can all agree that every candidate, um, no matter their background, deserves a chance to assess how comfortable they feel in a place, um, whether it's a training program or a city that they're going to live in. Um, And this is probably even more important for the uh, candidates who are underrepresented in medicine to find out how supportive a training program will be and how diverse a city is. Um, Programs can definitely find ways to showcase that they welcome diversity through either their websites or by holding diversity fairs, um, and that could be very helpful. But all of these, they remain very scripted events, and they don't replace the genuine, spontaneous interactions with people uh, that will give you a real feel for what the place is like and how welcoming and inclusive people are. Um, And I give the specific example of um, the candidates who are underrepresented in medicine being able to note um, any kind of microaggressions that they experience in an environment, either in a city or a training program or a hospital, um, that is really not possible in the virtual format. And Dr. Chiru, you also discuss um, 
and environmental impact related to travel for in-person interviews. Can you please outline that for our listeners? Sure. I I think we've all been thinking more about our own carbon footprint, but researchers have actually looked at the impact of travel for residency interviews. Uh, Dr. Donahue and colleagues at Northwestern University surveyed graduating medical students at the University of Michigan to gather information regarding their residency interview-related travel. And they found that on average, students were going to 14 interviews, and the first thing they did was actually calculate the total carbon footprint per student. They then extrapolated to all the residents participating in the match that year, and they estimated that this travel resulted in over 51,000 metric tons of carbon dioxide emissions per year. Now, I think that's an abstract number for, for most of us, but they framed this as equivalent to the amount of CO2 produced by 11,000 passenger cars in one year. So I think the environmental impact is actually quite large and just one other factor we need to consider. Dr. Alam, how do you respond to that point? Yeah, I think that's another point where, you know, Dr. Choru and I um, agree much more than disagree here. There's no doubt that in-person interviews have a, you know, mind-boggling uh, high carbon footprint and that virtual interviews can help lessen the environmental impact. And I'm definitely not advocating uh, a return to exclusive in-person interviews, uh, but on the other hand, I think that uh, maybe exclusive virtual interviews may not be the best solution for everyone and that a continued dialogue about how maybe to use both modalities to optimize the interview experience um, is needed. And Dr. True, would you like to mention the additional benefits to virtual uh, interviews that you wrote about, including faculty involvement? In our first year of virtual interviews, we actually discovered some unanticipated benefits. I think in prior years, our fellows had always interviewed at two out of four of our teaching hospitals, which really limited their interactions with faculty at our remaining sites. And in our first year of doing interviews, we found we were actually able to better match applicants with faculty that shared their clinical or their research interests. And it was also easier for faculty. I think for for larger programs, we're talking 200, 300 interviews um, during, you know, a four- to eight-week interview season. And it's, I think, much easier rather than faculty having to travel to a clinical site. They can quickly log on to Zoom, have a nice 30-minute conversation with an applicant, a lot less coordination than we used to have in prior years. I think virtual interviews also led programs to put more focus on their branding, including updating their outward-facing websites. Um, We're seeing more and more programs now using social media, and so I think programs have now started investing in how do we really display who we are to applicants when we're not able to meet them in person. Dr. Long, do you have a rebuttal to those arguments? Yeah, again, I I agree with most of these, and I think that um, the use of virtual interviews did and can help programs tailor and personalize a candidate's candidate's interview experience. Um, To the point of matching candidates with specific interviewers, I think in reality what's more likely to happen uh, is that that could be done in an asynchronous way, so people could be matched with uh, interviewers they're interested to to meet with on a day other than the interview or a little bit later on, because scheduling um, uh, or because of the 
complexity of juggling interviewers and candidate schedules. So that can still be done uh, with a mix of in-person and virtual interviews. Um, but, but overall, I agree with, with, with what she said, that the flexibility that the virtual interviews affords us is, is pretty, pretty priceless. Now, Dr. Alam, in your counterpoint, you write about the importance of finding a good fit and how there are four different types of fit, three of which are really harder to evaluate through virtual interviews. Can you please discuss that? Sure. So there's data from the psychology literature that looks at the consequences of uh, an individual's fit at work. And it turns out that there are four types of fit that have moderate to strong correlation with some long-term important outcomes, such as job satisfaction, job performance, indicators of strain, and the intent to quit one's job. And so these four types of fit that do correlate with these long-term outcomes are called a person-job fit, person-organization fit, person group fit and person supervisor fit. And I'll explain a little bit. The person job fit is really a simple assessment of one's abilities to do the job that one is hired to do. And I think in the context of fellowship recruitment or medical education recruitment, that's usually easily accessible from reviewing someone's application and conducting the virtual interview. But the other three types of fit have more to do with um, like the congruence between someone's personality, their attitudes, their goals, um, their interpersonal compatibility, um, and their overall values with those of the program, the people they're going to be working with, and the supervisors they're going to be working with. And it's probably easy to imagine that these types of fits are much more difficult uh, for someone to assess through, again, the very scripted virtual interview process and really would need a much wider exposure and more, more spontaneous interactions with the program and the people to better assess one's uh, fit in these three other ones. Now, Dr. Cheru, you state that fit might not be the best things for programs to try to assess. Can you explain why? Fit is such a tricky concept. Um, what we know is that applicants cite fit as a really important factor, both when they're considering programs that they're going to apply to and then, importantly, programs that they're going to be ranking. And then when you ask program directors, they also say fit is really important to them when, when they're making their ranking decisions. And I think fit can mean a lot of different things. It could refer to a background that supports a program's mission. So, that might be saying we're, we're looking for someone who has strong advocacy skills or someone who's had a lot of research experience because we're a research-heavy program. I think more commonly, though, what we're referring to is congruence of character traits. And I might perceive someone who's like me, whether that's socially, culturally, in their training background, I might perceive that person to be a good fit. However, that then runs counter to the goal of improving diversity in a program. I think we all want folks who are going to be bringing different perspectives to our programs. I think the other part of this is that when applicants use the term fit, what they're often trying to gauge is the culture of a program. And I will be the first to acknowledge that that is challenging in a virtual space, but I, I do think it's achievable. And I don't think that applicants should have to spend thousands of dollars to learn more about a program's culture. I think the onus is on us to figure out how to do that. Now, Dr. Alam, 
you also outlined the results of several studies assessing program director and applicant perceptions of virtual interviews, as well as possible ranking differences between applicants who do virtual versus in-person interviews. Can you please elaborate on that? Sure. Um, so, despite all the advantages and the practicality of the virtual interviews, um, the studies that we have so far have shown that a significant proportion of candidates still find it difficult to evaluate a program by using exclusively virtual interviews. And that's mainly because of their perceived decreased ability to evaluate the culture, like Dr. Cheru just said, and their own fit, quote unquote, within the program and the geographical location. Um, and although, although the majority of applicants and program directors think that we should continue to use virtual interviews in the future, most of them disagree about using them as the only modality and want to see some in-person interview as well. Um, in a most recent, actually, survey of applicants conducted by the NRMP, 51% of applicants still preferred uh, in-person interviews. And then... To your last point, there was a study done uh, at a surgical program in 2017 when that program actually just experimented with virtual interviews for a season when all other programs were still conducting in-person interviews. And what one of their findings was that 34% of applicants reported that the fact that this program conducted interviews virtually had an unfavorable impact on the candidates' rankings of the program. So this last specific point, I think, emphasizes the fact that um, if the choice of interview format is not made uniform across specialties, some programs may see their ranks unfavorably affected because they chose to conduct virtual interviews while others conducted in-person interviews. And Dr. Chirut, how do you respond to that argument? I think those data are very interesting. And, you know, I wonder if this is a matter of we don't know any different. I wonder if we are really just hanging on to an old relic because it's what many of us experienced ourselves when we applied to residency and fellowship. And I don't know if this is a good analogy, but I, it makes me wonder if this is the equivalent of the pulmonary artery catheter for residency and fellowship interviews, that this is something that we've always used and not really questioned. I, I'm personally an optimist. I think we can figure out a way to make this process a good one for both applicants and programs alike. And I, I think we probably need to look outside of medicine. I think we need to look to the business world where this is very much the norm and where you could make the argument that people are applying for jobs that they're going to have probably for much longer than someone's going to be in a residency or a fellowship program. I, mean, I think clearly they're both important interview processes, but I think there's models for how to do this effectively. And Dr. Alam, how does geographic location of a program factor into this discussion? So geographic location um, ranks as the number three in the most important factors that applicants consider when they are ranking a program. Uh, and I think that's one aspect where virtual interviews, I, can, I think we can all agree, are clearly inferior to in-person uh, interviews. Although virtual tours can attempt to kind of paint a picture of the place, they're really no match for the actual experience of exploring a city where you may be spending maybe the next three to four years of your life. Um, and from a 
program standpoint, on the other hand, I think that virtual interviews can also disadvantage programs who are located in smaller and less uh, well-known locations. Um, those programs depend on the interview day to make the applicants experience the place and help attract them to their programs. And they will likely be disadvantaged by going to exclusively virtual interviews. Dr. True, how do you suggest that applicants assess the geographic location of a program with virtual interviews? Well, I'll start by saying I think geography is really important. I think applicants are really looking for a place that they're going to thrive both personally and professionally. And I think on the personal end, a lot of that has to be in the environment that they're in. And I sometimes ask myself, would I have moved 3,000 miles across the country to Seattle if I had never stepped foot in this city before? And I don't know the answer to that question. At the same time, I'm not sure that applicants need to visit all of the cities where, where they are interviewing, especially those programs that might be lower on their list. Um, and I think it's possible to separate out a program visit from a city visit. If I was an applicant right now, I would be planning to visit my top two or three locations, especially if I had never been to those geographic sites. I, I think I would take the time after interviews are over to go visit a place, but I don't know that that needs to be a requirement. And Dr. Alam, you also argue that virtual interviews may impact the ability to assess an applicant's, quote, soft skills. What do you mean by that? Um, so the Data from past um, NRMP reports show that three out of the top ten most important factors that programs use for ranking candidates have to do with what I call those soft skills, which means their interpersonal skills, their interactions with faculty, and interactions with house staff during their visit. And, uh, you know, this importance of these factors is really not surprising because most educators uh, and program directors would agree that um, most of the problems encountered with trainees have more to do with uh, interpersonal skills and professionalism, uh, i.e. the soft skills, rather than uh, knowledge or procedural competency. Um, and one of the main ways we use to evaluate those soft skills is from observing interactions with the candidates' interactions with others during the visit, sometimes getting feedback from uh, our own fellows or trainees about their interactions with the candidates or from the program coordinators about how the candidates behaved, you know, during the interview when we weren't looking. Um, but with the scripted nature of these virtual interviews, uh, these opportunities to observe uh, these soft skills are very limited, if not non-existent. And Dr. True, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think first, I'll, I'll say I think those soft skills are absolutely important um, and something we want to know about applicants. And I think there's a, a number of ways that we gauge those. I think one is honestly through letters of recommendation, right? I think a strong letter of recommendation um, from a faculty member for an applicant will touch on those many of those skills, whether it's related to communication or leadership or whatever else. I think second, there is some way to assess that during the interview process um, with, fa with faculty interviewers. Um, I think a lot of the behavioral-based interview questions that are, are now being adopted by lots of training programs, they're trying to get at those, those soft skills. And then number three, I think 
even when we think back to what our inter- what, what in-person interviews used to be like when we were entirely in person, those were still really scripted days, right? There was a formality to those days where applicants were meeting with a number of faculty members. They might be in a conference. They might interact with, with fellows. But I don't know how fully relaxed and how fully themselves they're being during that time. And sure, we could observe some some interactions that happen, you know, water cooler conversations. But if you think about an in at an average interview day, that might just be one or two minutes out of a day where we're able to really assess those skills. So I guess I would argue that that was never something that we were doing with in-person interviews uh, to a great extent. And so I don't think we're losing a lot by moving to the virtual interview format. Dr. Alam, can you please explain your argument on how virtual interviews introduce interview allocation disparities? Yes. Um, So we know that virtual interviews have led to an increase in application volumes, at least in our subspecialty. Um, A recent, and probably in actually most subspecialties, because a recent um, NRMP research report about this past virtual uh, interview season in 2020 uh, showed that 41% of applicants reported that they applied to a larger number of programs than they would have Uh, for in-person interviews, and 36% of them interviewed with a greater number of programs due to the uh, virtual interview format. Um, And then similarly, 37% of program directors reported seeing anywhere from 10 to 25% increase in application volumes. And what we've also seen is that there's a a lot less interview cancellations with the virtual interview format. So programs find themselves in a situation where they have a significant increase in application volumes without the ability to discern which applicants are actually interested in their program. Uh, Since interviewing became such a low-cost investment for the candidates, uh, they end up accepting most of the interview invitations that they get, regardless of their level of interest. So what could happen is that programs are going to be sending interview invitations to candidates candidates that they perceive as safe bets or as more interested. So either people coming from well-recognized institutions uh, or local applicants or applicants with geographic proximity, which is what I mean by interview allocation disparities. And this, in turn, can affect the the diversity of our recruitment. Dr. Chiru, what is your rebuttal to that point? I think that is a very fair concern. We have been seeing an increase in the number of applications by applicant for a number of years. I would say even before virtual interviews, um, applicants are applying to more and more programs each year. And that does lead to interview allocation disparities. And I think programs are trying to tackle that on a number of fronts. I've heard of some programs using secondary applications. I think there's been a national conversation about whether there, there needs to be application caps. Um, maybe we don't allow people to apply to 70 different programs. Um, So I don't have the answer to how we address that. I think it is a very valid concern. And I think, again, the onus is on us uh, as, as a community to think about how we prevent those disparities. Great. So as we finish up this discussion, I'd like each of you to please give our listeners a closing thought on what you want them to take away from this discussion. Dr. True? I guess I would say 
I hope that we can look at virtual interviews as an opportunity. I, I really do think this is an opportunity to rethink a system that has a lot of costs, both financial and otherwise, and some other flaws. And as I said earlier, I think the onus is on programs to figure out how to make the virtual interview process work. And I'm hopeful that we may end up with a better system in the end across many domains. And Dr. Alon. So I think that um, Dr. Churu and I probably uh, agree a lot more than we disagree on a lot of these points. There's no doubt that virtual interviews have a lot of advantages, and there's no doubt in my mind that we will and should continue to use them in the future. Um, however, I think that we should pause before we start using them exclusively uh, and understand the potential challenges that they bring, specifically for some candidates, such as new biases, the interview allocation disparities, and the increase in application loads for our programs. Um, and then the fact that they hinder a candidate's ability to assess their fit and their comfort level in a city or a program or the desirability of the geographic location, which both can affect long-term performance. So in reality, I don't really think that uh, we know much about the suitability of the virtual interviews long-term, and we should continue to gather data. Um, from the data that we have so far, it seems that despite the positives, most candidates still prefer in-person interviews. Um, so I think I agree that the onus is on us uh, to create an interview format that would uh, work for all candidates. Um, but I don't. it may be that we should... Um, find a way to conduct the interview where uh, candidates can equitably choose between both modalities uh, so that they have the interview experience that matches their specific needs. Well, a huge thank you to both Dr. Chiru and Dr. Alam for an excellent discussion, and a big thank you to our CHESS community for joining us. I'm Gretchen Winter, and this is a CHESS podcast. Until next time. <laughs>